Do you smell the sweet aroma? Do you hear the heavenly music? Do you feel the joy and excitement? Everything's ready. Come, join the ceremony. Taste the marriage feast. With bated breath, we anticipate the long-awaited union. Christ and his betrothed bride. The church clothed in linen so pure and fine. Adorned in love, our hearts ache to be joined. Finally, the time has come. Face to face with the Holy One, with unveiled eyes, we will see the bridegroom. Through his glory and power, we will be like him, an everlasting covenant deeper than blood. Rejoice and celebrate the wedding banquet of the Lamb. Oh, it shall be glorious. It's going to be a glorious wedding day. If you're part of the bride, be getting yourself ready. It's coming. It's going to happen. I have some uh, recycled gum up here if anyone would like some. It's from previous service. It's special anointed gum <laughs> for a seed faith offering. If, oh, I'm right. <laughs> got to learn how to make some money off this racket like the TV evangelist. You know, no fair. All right, how you doing? I'm Greg Boyd. It's good to be back here. I've been gone for a couple weeks. I'm sitting down this message because, oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, you know, if you're young, I hope you don't take for granted your nice health and your backs that don't ache and your necks that don't ache, because it doesn't always stay that way, let me tell you. Uh, so so I, I've been doing a lot of traveling lately, and traveling is always a little bit hard on my body, and so I got, got to sleep in these beds that aren't like sleeper number beds, and so my back, it's all jacked up. So it's easier to sit down than stand, but it feels like a speech impairment. So we'll, 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 we'll it does, it's like I'm used to like pacing. We'll see how this goes. I might get up if the spirit moves. And uh, yeah, the back gets healed. Who knows? Oh, so uh, uh, big shout out to Dan and Oshida who did great jobs the last two weeks preaching, didn't they? What, what a gift they are. We're very blessed around here. Very blessed around here. I, I was, oh, well, a couple things happened in the last two weeks. Number one, I am the, uh, Shelly and I are the proud grandparents, number six of a little girl. This is Tim and Alicia, my daughter and son-in-law. And that's, that's Taisha. Uh, yeah, Taisha. And uh, isn't she adorable? <laughs> she's so adorable. She's a little baby. Oh, she's, we're just so grateful. Yeah, this, this is their fourth child, their third adopted child, and our sixth grandchild. And we are just overjoyed. Lord, thank you for this wonderful, wonderful gift. Amen. She kind of looks like me if you think about it when I'm sleeping. Oh, nice and cute. Nice and cute. So I was over in London for a while and uh, joining with Roger Forster and Faith Forster, two of my kingdom heroes, and Ictus Fellowship. It's a house church movement. It's been going on for 40 years over in, in London and doing some cool things. Uh, they have an annual meeting called Revive, and, and I just love going to it. I've been there four times now, and I'm a speaker at it and stuff. And, you know, it, it just it, it's like I get to get out there and, and, and talk to a bunch of kingdom pastors, you know, networks and stuff, and that's what I was doing. And whenever you go to people who've got this vision of a kingdom, a Jesus-looking God raising up a Jesus-looking people to change the world in a Jesus kind of way, it sounds so, you know, blasé, but it's radical. And when folks have gotten this, there's just a... I don't know, when you come to a group that has this shared vision or something, there's like a kingdom flavor. It's like you can feel the kingdom. And there's a love and a lightness and a joy and a fun that's just there. It's like you're part of family. And I felt that in London. I felt that in Scotland. Met with several different groups of pastors. People who are just like starting to network together because they, they realize that they have this, this, this shared faith. And, and for a lot of these folks, I'll tell you, 
Woodland Hills is like a flagship or a lifeline. And I get to go out to all these groups, and in a lot of places, half the people or more have, are parishioners or have read some of our stuff. And, 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 and so they come up and they give me these testimonies. And one of the frustrations of my life is I just can't pass on all these testimonies to you because they're so beautiful. Uh, often they just brought tears to my heart. But people saying that, you know, that through the podcast ministry, their faith was saved or their life was saved or, you know, their, their, their life was revolutionized in different ways. And I don't know, it's just so many testimonies and they're just beautiful. And I want you to know I feel humbled and honored. I, we should all feel honored to be part of this. That God uses us in that way. It's just beautiful. And so I like going out there. A lot of these folks feel very isolated. You know, in Scotland, there's only about 2 3% of the population is Christian. It's thoroughly secular, so the Christians are on the margin. And a lot of these pastors are out there on their own. And, and it, it, they just tell me what a lifeline it is to be able to tap in, to, to, to get fed by our ministry. And we're, we're looking at ways. Uh, we and some other churches in the Meeting House up in Toronto. That's where Bruxy's the pastor. Uh, they're kind of forming something called the Jesus Collective, and you'll be hearing more about that as we go forward. But what we're looking at doing, the next step of this, this movement or this revolution that's going on around the, the globe is for people to start to get networked together. And we want to have a one-stop shop that resources this, this revolution and that gets people connected and, and all sorts of things like that. So be, be looking for that. In fact, you could Google it now and start finding out about it. There, it's not officially launched yet, but, but it is out there. And uh, it's going to be cool. We are living in a Kairos moment. Things are changing. The face of the church is going to look very different 50 years from now than what it is now. We're part of, the, of a reformation that's going on at the very, very beginning stages of it. And it's really exciting. And I hope you feel that. I hope you feel it. It's, it's really, whenever I go out to these places and talk to these pastors, I get jazzed. I just love it. Just love it. Okay, so today we're finishing up the series that we've been doing called Long Story Short. And kind of looking at the, the, the big picture, looking at small snippets to get the, see the forest through the trees. And what I'd like to do this morning is wrap this thing up. And I want to do it by kind of giving a, a panoramic review of the Bible story. But I want to do it from the perspective of, of a groom seeking out a bride who's been seduced into believing a lie. Um, and, and, and I want to then end this by then pointing to the direction that the story is going. We're still in this story that we've been unpacking. And, and I want to look at the end game. Where's this whole thing headed? Um, I want to start by uh, showing a movie clip. It's, it's, uh, oh, it's about 15 years old now, I guess. It's, it's definitely one of those guys would call it a chick flick. It's kind of emotional, whatever. I love the chick flicks. I don't know what it is. I guess, you know. But uh, I'm secure in my masculinity. That's what it is, guys. All right. I'm not afraid to cry. So this is, the, this movie is The Notebook. Some of you have seen it? The Notebook? James got my hell. The girls, oh, no, 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 Yeah, it, it's a, so this is the scene where, okay, so, so uh, Jim Gardner character, his name is Noah. He's just this ordinary, steal more worker or something. And, and, and then this uh, other lady's a wealthier, attractive gal, and they somehow get together, and it's kind of a funky relationship, but they live happy ever after for the most part. It's a wonderful love story. But then at the end of this love story, uh, she comes down with dementia. And the most cruel aspect of some forms of dementia is that your loved one can be there one minute and completely gone the next minute. And so he would go and read a story to her. He kept a notebook of a story of their life, basically. And he would read the story of their life, trying to get her to remember. At one point, she begins to remember. She comes to. And we pick up the story right there. Let's watch it. (laughs) 
I uh, hope and pray none of us have to go through that. Some of, some of you probably already have. Parishioners, some of you have, I'm sure. I, I can't imagine how ter- terrible that would be. You have a person you love, and you've heard life together, had a story together, and then something happens, and they go into a fog, and not only do they not remember you, but they're terrified of you. They're afraid of you. That would just, you love them, and they think you're a monster. I, I really think that that scene captures the heart of God towards his bride when she fell. Where have you gone? Where have you gone? Because um, see, one of the main ways that the Bible describes God's relationship to humanity is, is that God is the groom and we are the bride. It's just one of the metaphors that are used. There's many others. But the, the, and see, in, in Jewish culture, there's always a two-stage wedding. There's a betrothal where you're engaged, but you're actually legally married. And then that would be a time where you prepare for marriage, and then you get married on your wedding day. So you're legally married two years or one year before your, the, the wedding's consummated. And so the way the Bible depicts this is that this epic that we're in now is a time of God courting humanity and trying to win humanity's heart uh, and, in order to acquire a bride. And then for the bride to be getting to making herself ready, all preparing for that wedding day, uh, which will happen when the kingdom comes. That, that, that happens in the, the, the next age. And if Paul goes so far as to say that our relationship with Christ is, is, is like the one flesh relationship of a husband and wife. What he's saying there is that the, the intimacy and joy and ecstasy and, and shared life together that is, should characterize an ideal husband and wife, that that's something like what it will be like for the, the, the relationship that we'll have with God throughout eternity, which points to a very optimistic future if you think about it. So God creates this world. One way of thinking about it is to acquire a bride. A bride with whom he wants to pour his whole love into, his whole self into, give himself away entirely in order to win her heart so she would pour herself into him entirely. And the goal is for the relationship between God and humans to replicate and participate in the love of the triune God, the love that God eternally is. We'll forever be participating in that. It's a glorious plan. And see, we've seen throughout this whole series that when we keep covenant with God, his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. And so the plan is for, as his bride is in covenant with God, the first covenant is, is, is really a marriage proposal, and, and we're to be the bride of Christ. And, and so when we do that, we'll reign with Christ, and, and God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the goal. And it could have been glorious, and it would have been glorious, and it should have been glorious. And someday it will still be glorious, but something terrible happened to the bride. And we read about it in Genesis 3, the, the bride, Eve, comes under seduction, gets seduced by this serpent. She believes a lie of the serpent. The serpent paints a picture of God as being a petty God, a God who doesn't have her best interest in mind, a God who's holding out on her. And Adam and Eve begin to believe that lie, and then they act on that lie and violate God's prohibition on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they act on that lie, they lock it in. They lock in that lie and come under kind of a spell. And from, from, from now on, fallen humanity will tend to view God through the eyes of the serpent. Through the eyes of the lie that the serpent foistered upon us. And there's a thousand versions of that lie, but none of them are pretty. And since we're eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil now, the tree of judgment, the tree of the accuser, first thing we do as a race is we accuse God, we judge God. And so we read this in Genesis 3. It says that, that, that when they heard the sound of the Lord God, 
walking in the, at the time of the evening breeze. It says in Genesis 2 that they would go out for walks in the cool of the day, in the time of the evening breeze, which in the Mediterranean world was simply the best time of the day. Things are cooling down. And so they go for a walk. So God shows up to go for a walk, but Adam and Eve aren't there. They're hiding. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of, God, of the Lord God among the trees of the, of the garden. So Adam and Eve now, they're afraid of God. What happened? What happened was that he fell under this delusion. They're under this spell. They're, they're now strapped with the serpent's eyes, as it were, and so they view God as a terrifying threat. So they hide. And humanity has been viewing God as a terrifying threat ever since and hiding from God ever since. In the heart of God is, is God saying, in fact, you can even see it in the Genesis account, where are you? He says, where are you? He's puzzled. Like, what happened? What happened? I, What's changed here? God hasn't changed, but the way that humanity views God has changed. And now we see God as this threat, and we're afraid, and we hide. Now, this was our own doing. It's our own fault. We, as a race, and we individually, succumb to this temptation and have trouble trusting in an all-good, all-loving God. Uh, it's our own fault. At the same time, we've been seduced. Those two things can both be true. So Paul says this in, 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 Colossians, or in Corinthians. He says, The God of this age, referring to Satan... The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So they cannot see in their minds the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then in verse 6, For God who said, Let the light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so they cannot see the, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we willfully put ourselves in that position, but we have been seduced. We've been blinded. And so in a lot of respects, we're just like the, Noah's wife, Allie, as she's coming under this fog. We've come under a fog. And God's altogether beautiful, but we have this age-long tendency to think that he's not. And God's altogether good, but we always suspect that there's a mean streak in him. God's altogether beautiful, but we suspect there's an ugly streak in God. God's altogether gracious, but the bride tends to think that he's a taskmaster. And so the bride tends to go, who are you? What are you doing here? Leave us alone. And that's got to be breaking the heart of God. The bride can't see the beauty that's right in front of her. In fact, she's terrified of the beauty right in front of her. And you look at the history of religions, and also it's a, it's a history of humans projecting their own fears onto God. It's like we've fallen into our own dementia, and we have all this fear, and so we think, project it on the screen of heaven and call that God. And that's basically what you find throughout the history of religions. Terrifying gods. We're terrified of them. See, all of this, folks, reflects this very important principle. You find it throughout the Bible in a lot of different ways. Uh, Psalms 18 gives us a real clear version of it. Here's the principle. Uh, it says of God, when the loyal, uh, With the loyal you show yourself loyal. With the blameless, to blameless people you show yourself blameless. To the pure you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you show yourself perverse. Now, the idea of you show yourself doesn't mean that God intentionally repackages himself, depending on the person, but rather, show yourself just has the idea of you present yourself, you appear. To the loyal, you appear loyal. To the, to the pure, you appear pure. But to the crooked, you appear perverse. And what's going on here, it's, it's an ancient truth. It's found throughout the Bible. You find it in a lot of places. But it's simply this, this truth, that like is known by like. Like is known by like. Uh, you only can know the beauty of another person to the degree that your, your heart is beautiful. You can see their beauty because you've got something like that in yourself. And you only know that a person's loving because you've got 
love in your own heart. You find an ugly person who has no love in their heart and they can't see the love in another person. What they'll see is what's in their heart. They, they'll see the ugliness. They'll suspect everybody. You get a thief, they're always suspicious that everyone's going to steal from them. Like is known by like. And see, for that reason, only to the degree that you yourself are loyal can you see God as loyal. To the degree that you're not loyal, you're going to see God as disloyal. So also, to the degree that you're not blameless, to the degree that you're guilty, you're going to see God as guilty. And to the degree that you're twisted, you're going to see God as perverse. And when you're crooked, see, and God, God lets that happen. If this is how you're going to see me, then I'll let you see me. But it's, it's about like, like can only know like. And see, for God, since God wants to be known by us, the, the biblical story is a story of God becoming like us in our fog to free us so that we could be like him. And, 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 and he woos us by his beauty step by step to come into the truth. So the, the, the Bible story is a story of a loving groom who is willing to go to the furthest extreme necessary, as low as possible, in order to wake his bride up, to free his bride from this stupor, from, to free his bride from this demonically caused dementia that causes her to be afraid of him, in order that he can finally begin to reveal his true beauty to her, in order to win her heart, so they can begin this love affair that's supposed to go on forever and ever and ever. That's the biblical story. And the plan of God is this. He'll do this by entering into solidarity with his bride. His foggy bride, his dementia bride. He, he, he's going to stoop to enter into her twisted world. It's like if this Noah character could have somehow, as his wife retreats into her fog, he loses her. He says, come back. But it's as though if, if there was some way that he could go in, if he could incarnate himself in her twisted world and deal with whatever craziness is in her twisted, foggy world, but find the real her in the midst of all that and out of his love begin to lead her out of that foggy world into truth, well, that's what God's doing with humanity. That's what God does with humanity. It comes down to our level to bring us up to his level. And so Noah, it's like Noah would enter into her delusional world in order to lovingly bring her out of that delusion. Now that happens fully on the, uh, in the, with the incarnation of the cross. In the incarnation and uh, on Calvary, God dives headlong into the world, the messy world, the disturbed world, the sinful, twisted world of his bride and bears her sin. And that's why God takes on, in that twisted world, the appearance that's ugly, that reflects the ugliness of the sin that God is bearing. But see, the reason the incarnation and the cross reveal God fully is because they reveal what God's always like. And so from the cross and the incarnation, we've got to know that God's always been incarnational. And God's always been self-sacrificial. That's not a new thing that Jesus created for God. God's always been that way. And that's what Jesus reveals. And so, so this is a God who's always been willing to enter into the messiness of his bride. Always been willing to stoop as low as necessary. In order to bear the, the sin and the brokenness of his bride. And to take on an appearance that reflects that sin and brokenness. God's always been willing to do that. He's willing to come, become like us in our brokenness that we can become like him in his holiness and his beauty. And so you might say that to the disloyal bride, God was willing to appear disloyal. But he, he's willing to appear disloyal so that he can continue to influence her to eventually prove that, in fact, he's the epitome of loyalty. And to a guilty bride, God's willing to stoop to appear guilty. If that's how you're going to see me, then that's how you're going to see me. You think I'm like you. Well, I'll let you think I'm like you so that I can keep on loving you so you can become like me. <laughs> That's the plan uh, that, that you, the salvation you find throughout the Bible. God's always been willing to stoop to enter the, the messiness of his bride and to reflect whatever it needs. He needs, needs reflecting to bring her out of it. 
So a crooked bride, he's willing to appear perverse. But in order to keep on loving her out of her crookedness and and, into wholeness. And this is a story of the entire biblical narrative. God's leading the bride out of her ugliness, out of her delusion, out of her stupor, out of her seduction, leaving her out of that and leading her into truth. And he does it by revealing his beauty as much as possible. Behold my beauty. He's drawing us on by his beauty, freeing us from our ugly conceptions of God to reveal the truth about who he is. So we've seen this throughout this series in a lot of different ways. So for example, I'll take one motif. We saw that because they're blinded by the God of this age, everybody in the ancient Near East believes that the gods need feeding and our job is to feed them. And that's how we appease them and that's how we keep them happy so they don't throw thunderbolts at us. And so they offer up animals and they offer up children. Everybody assumes this. The gods need feeding. And the Israelites are part of the ancient Near Eastern world, so they all believe this. Now, the Holy Spirit always reveals as much of God's true self as he can, and so pushes them in the direction of truth as as much as possible. And see, if God was a control freak, God, a a God who's less secure, what he could have done is just gone in there, grab his, his bride's brain, and lobotomize her, just completely redo her brain so that now she only thinks true thoughts about him. Unlike everybody else in the ancient Eastern world, we know that God doesn't delight in animal sacrifices. God could have done that. But see, God is love. And love never dominates another person. Love never coerces another person. Love never manipulates another person. Love always honors the personhood of another person. Love doesn't turn a person into robots, even if you don't like what they're like when they're not robots. No, you honor the personhood. So God's not going to lobotomize anybody. If, he'll influence as much as possible, but when there comes a point where any more influence would be coercive, God says, okay, if that's the way you need to think about me, then I'll play by your game. And he takes on that semblance. And so God was able in the ancient Near East to, to wean the Israelites off the idea that he needs food. That was a big accomplishment. And so we never have the Israelites feeding Yahweh. Although you do have two references to sacrifices being referred to as Yahweh's food. And so that's a little bit of a carryover from the ancient Near Eastern world. But on the whole, he, he managed to free the bride from that delusion. But there's a point in which he couldn't let go yet. Um, yeah, okay, God doesn't need to be fed, but the people still believe that God delighted and demanded sacrifices. And so, so they're going to do sacrifices. So Yahweh says, Leviticus 17, okay, if you're going to do sacrifices, then don't do them to the demons, do them to me. You want to sacrifice? Sacrifice to me. And it changes the meaning of it a little bit. And he frees them from the idea that you need to feed me, but they still need to believe that he, he enjoys it. And so everyone believes that the smell of the aroma attracts the gods, and so the ancient Israelites, you find in the Bible all over the place, they make sacrifices, and the smell goes up, and Yahweh smelled the great smell of the sacrifices, and it pleased him. But see, that doesn't reflect who Yahweh actually is. This is Yahweh accommodating the needs of his people. This is where they're at. And so God lovingly works with them where they're at. So he frees them from the thinking they need food, but I'll let you go ahead and think I enjoy the smell. Eventually, he, he gets rid of that. I don't even enjoy the smell. In fact, I don't even like sacrifices. What I want is justice and mercy, right? And so you find that in the Minor Prophets. But later on, we find even another revelation, another degree of, of beauty, another level of beauty, another, another level of blinders falling from our eyes when we come to realize that not only is God not a God who demands animal sacrifices, God is the God who becomes our sacrifice, praise God. It's the, the groom, that's one, that's one storyline of the groom coming down, entering into the fog of the bride and saying, okay, you can think of that, me that way, but come on, keep, keep on, keep, 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 he keeps on influence, keep on influence, keeps on loving, and finally, oh, the bride can get, oh, you don't, you don't need to be fed, that's great, oh, you don't even enjoy the smell, oh, you don't even want us to be killing them, oh, you're the sacrifice, boom, you see, 
It, 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 God's leading us out of darkness by his love, line by line. It's uh, inch by inch. And this is what we, we've seen in this series God does all over the place. In fact, it's interesting that the, all the covenants, except for the first and, and, and the, the, the second, all those ones in between, um, are accommodations, as we saw. So, so everybody in the ancient Near East believes in a law-centered deity. Their deities are all about keeping this law and whatever. And so, not surprisingly, uh, that's what we find in the Bible. The Israelites have a, a law-centered deity. God enters into a covenant with Moses that's based on the law. But it doesn't reflect who God really is. We know who God really is in Jesus Christ, and in Jesus Christ we find that God's not this legalist, meticulous law keeper. But this is the best the Israelites could do at the time. And so God accommodates what they need at the time. But keeps on, and, and, and the Spirit influences these laws as much as possible so that they improve upon what you generally find in the rest of the culture. But throughout the rest of the narrative, then you'll find that God appears very much like a typical ancient Near Eastern uh, law-centered deity. But that's not because God is actually that way. It's because his people are this way. And this is the groom humbly entering into the delusion of the bride to love her out of that delusion. Amen? Same thing with this king-centered covenant that God made with David. This wasn't God's idea. God never wanted humans ruling over other humans. All governments are a sign of the broken world. God wanted to be our king directly, alone. But the bride couldn't trust God for that. The bride got scared of these other nations. The bride wanted to be like the other nations and have a king-centered deity and, and, and have a God who just operated the way the other gods do in the other nations. And though it broke God's heart, there came a point where God says, okay, if that's what you want, I'll give it to you. It's not going to go well, but if that's what you want, I'll give it to you. And from then on, God looks very much like, in the biblical record, very much like the ancient Eastern gods who, who always operated, always mediated their presence to people through, through a king. But God does that. I'll accept you with this king business in order to keep on loving you and influencing you so finally someday maybe you'll see that I'm not like the ancient Eastern king-centered deities and I'm not like the ancient Near Eastern law-centered deities. I'm a God of grace, not law. And I'm a God who wants to directly love you, not through some human mediator. In fact, I want to be your king directly and all your love and all your trust and all your allegiance should be given towards me and not some human government. And that still is a mandate that kingdom people should be operating by if somebody say amen. So the, the Bible love story, you guys, is, is, it's a story of this groom who's outrageously, unfathomably in love with a bride who put herself in the position where she's been deluded and, and seduced and she's foggy. And God's willing to do whatever it takes, stoop however low he needs to stoop, bear whatever sin he needs to bear, experience whatever pain he needs to experience, be as patient as he, as he needs to be patient in order to gradually love that bride out of her delusion and to reveal himself on, in truth. Amen? And Folks, this is what happens on Calvary. In a supreme way, this is what God does on Calvary. On Calvary, God does in a supreme way what he's been doing throughout history. Uh, on Calvary, on the cross, we see the summing up of the story of the whole Bible. The whole Bible is really a reflection of the cross. If, if you're reading it through a cross perspective, as I think, I think we should. And so and it's not surprising that the cross sums up the whole Bible because the cross reveals what God has always been like. God's always, God didn't start being cross-like with Jesus. He's always been like this. He's always been incarnational, always been entering into the, the fogginess of his bride to love her out of it. And so the cross culminates the story of this groom rescuing his bride from this delusion. Uh, and on the cross, we see God diving this infinite distance to enter into, fully enter into our sin and our curse. And therefore, he takes on an appearance that reflects the ugliness of our sin and our curse. And that's what God's been doing throughout all of history. Um, revealing his beauty in this way. So when we read the Bible, you guys, we should read it through the lens of the cross. 
We should know it's the distance that God crosses on our behalf that reveals the love that God is. And so on the cross, he crosses an infinite distance, an unsurpassable distance, thereby revealing that his love is unsurpassably perfect. He couldn't love us more because he couldn't be a more loving God. And you know that by the distance he crossed. So also as we read the Bible, we got to be looking for God in the distance. When God appears in sub-Christ-like ways and king-centered ways and law-centered ways and violent ways, when, when we see that, we've got to know we know what God's like because we know God on Calvary. And so we know that in this case, the ugliness doesn't reveal what God's like. That reveals what God's people are like. That's how God's people view him. What reveals God is that God was willing to step into this. <laughs> he stepped into the fogginess of his bride. He's bearing that sin in order to reveal beauty, uh, leading her more and more to truth. And the thing is this. The more beauty you see, the more you become beautiful. And the more you become beautiful, the more you see. Like is known by like. But like is also transferred by like. And as you, as you gaze upon the, Christ, the image of God, and you can see his beauty, you become more like that beauty. And the more you see, the more you become, the more you become, the more you see. This is what Paul's getting at in a very important passage that's not preached on enough except in Woodland Hills Church, I suspect. Second Corinthians 3, listen to this. You just don't find pastors making much out of this, but it's everything. Listen to this. He says about unbelievers, he says, their minds were hardened. Unbelievers' minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil, a veil over the mind, is still there. Since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. They can't see what they're supposed to see. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil, praise God, is removed. Now where the Spirit of the Lord is, uh, and the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We sang about that a little bit ago, right? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now here's the freedom. He's, it, it, there's a lot of freedom that comes with the Spirit, but here's one major freedom. Because he says, and all of us now, because we've been set free by the Spirit, because that veil's been removed, the deception's been removed, the curse has been lifted, because of that, we with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So when you turn to the Lord, there's a veil in your mind that's removed. And now you can see something you couldn't see before. And it's right after this, by the way, that Paul says that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But when the veil is removed, that's what we can see. And as we behold God's beauty, Paul says this, we become that beauty. As we gaze upon that beauty, like becomes like and like is transformed by like. We take on that likeness. As I behold and just enjoy God's love for me, I become more loving. I see God's joy over me, I become more joyful. And see God's peace towards me, I become more peaceful. This has been the plan all along. This is what God's been doing with his people all along. Revealing ever-increasing lines of beauty. But here in Christ, Paul says, this is where the transformation takes place. How do you become beautiful? By trying hard, by striving hard in your own effort? Paul says, No. It's when you behold Christ in your mind. Now, this in your mind is what we call our imagination. There's a, it's everybody in the world up until very recently in the West understood that the imagination, yes, it can be child's play, make-believe, but it also can be the, the, the doorway, a portal into the spiritual realm for better or for worse. Everyone's understood that. And Paul clearly sees that. Because he's saying is, is, as we behold in our imagination, now that the veil's been removed, as we behold the beauty, we're transformed into that beauty from one degree of glory to another. So folks, it is imperative, I think, if, if we want to be beautified, if we want to be transformed, if we want to become more like God, it's imperative that we carve out space for God to do this. 
This is like a main thing here. It's the key to transformation. Block out time where you get alone with Jesus. And, and, and you just gaze upon his beauty and ask the Spirit to activate your imagination, to bring you to the real Jesus, to show Jesus in all of his glory. And know this, that when you think you're seeing Jesus in all of his glory, you're getting a little reflection. But keep on pressing. Ask the Spirit for more, because he's more beautiful than that. And the more you can see, the more you'll be able to see. Because <laughs> the, the more you see, the more you're transformed into the beauty that you're seeing, and that increases your capacity to see. You get a momentum thing kind of going, carve out time. And if you haven't done this before, it feels awkward and weird, and, and it takes practice. Cut yourself some slack, give yourself some patience, and, 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 and go with it. Because folks, this, it, it changes everything. This is, this is the center of the center here. Look at Jesus, this is why Jesus saved you, is to hang out with you. He loves to hang out with you throughout eternity. Start now. This is the purpose for everything. Enjoy him enjoying you. Set aside all their concerns. There's time for that. Intercessory prayer. All, but this is the time for you just to be enthralled with God being enthralled with you. And that's what starts this momentum thing going. The more beauty you see, the more beauty you become. And those times can be incredible. Those, those, those times in the inner sanctum, the church called the imagination, the inner sanctum, the place where the truths of God become concrete, real, tangible, and transformative. And you can have some incredible experiences in that realm, I'm telling you, and, and they're transforming. But even those experiences are through a mirror, Paul says. Through a mirror. It's, it's his word for the imagination. We encounter the real Jesus when we go to him in prayer and envision him and the spirits there. We encounter the real Jesus as beautiful and transformative, but it's still mediated. It's not yet face-to-face. -face. There's something more coming. And, 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 and this brings us to the question of how does this story end? Now, biblical authors, when they talk about the end, they strain language and they use all sorts of different metaphors to try to capture the beauty and glory of this end. This end traditionally in the church has been called the beatific vision. It means the beautiful vision. It's the vision of God and all God's glory. And in the traditional teaching of the church, heaven will be primarily about gazing upon and participating in that unsurpassable beauty. That's beyond words, beyond description. Um, you, you can't conceive of it. And the biblical authors use all this imagery. One of them is, uh, in Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is a beautiful imagery. The, the story of the groom uh, rescuing the bride finally culminates with this supper, a feast of all sorts. And they use imagery of, of pearly gates and streets of gold and all sorts of things like that. Um, it's beautiful. But the, 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 the glimpse I want to give you comes from one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Um, it's just a little peekaboo of this beatific vision. It's 1 John 3. Okay, and this is, I'll, I'll, I'll let it speak for itself. See what love the Father has given on us. See what love the Father has given on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. See what kind of love the Father has given on us. He's just saying, don't take it for granted. Don't ever take for granted the love that God has given you. In fact, the word given there could be lavished upon. He's lavished on us, and it's that love that makes us children of God. And that is what we are. And the reason we are children of God is because God says we're children of God and God gets to define reality. Amen? So we are children of God. Lock that in. That's already done. But then he goes on. He says, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Since we're children of God, we've got the character of, of God within us, uh, the character of love enemies. And the world's not supposed to understand us. So if the world is puzzled, if your neighbors are puzzled, workers are puzzled by your service to others and your unwillingness to strike back or whatever, you're doing it right. Keep on going in that direction. Okay, then it says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And he wants to reiterate that. He already told us that. Why are you repeating yourself? Well, because it's not always obvious, is it? 
We are God's children. Okay, he says it. It must be true. And some days there's not much evidence of that. But, but lock, you can take this to the bank. You are God's children. But now listen to this. What we will become has not yet been revealed. What we will be, go back one slide. What we will become has not yet been revealed. Okay, we know we're children of God. But we don't yet know what that's going to look like when it's fully revealed. And he says it's got to be revealed, which means we're not even close. It's got to be revealed to us. It's like... We, we, you think we can maybe just extrapolate and, 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 and see the, how the process will keep on improving. But he says, what we are, when, we are, when we fully manifest that we're children of God, man, we don't have a clue how great and glorious that is going to be, all right? It's not yet revealed. You don't, have, you don't, you don't realize how beautiful you're going to look once, once everything else gets burned away. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be great. And then he goes on and says, what we do know is this. We don't yet have a clear conception, but we do know this, that when he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Hallelujah. Like is known by like. And the promise of John here is that someday we are going to be like him and we'll see him as he is. Finally, finally the groom will have woken the bride out of her stupor. Finally, her, the blinders on her eyes will be melted away. Finally, she'll be able to see him in all of his glory because she will be transformed into that glory like is known by like. And we'll see him in all of his beauty because we'll be transformed into that beauty. And we'll see him in all of his joy because we'll be transformed into that joy. Everything that is God's by nature, he'll share with us by grace. And, and, and here the process is complete. The more, you see, the, the more you see the beauty, the more you become the beauty. The more you become it, the more you see it, the more you see it, the more you become it. The final state of things, folks, is here. Boom. We shall see him as he is, and it will be glorious. It will be glorious. And we can't have a clue what that would, we, we, we can't even begin to imagine what that looks like. The Bible tells us that. Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, it's never entered into the heart of man what God has in store for those who love him. My favorite verse to, to point out how we can't conceive it is, is, is Romans 8.18, where, where Paul says that, that um, uh, he doesn't consider the sufferings of this present age to be worth comparing with the glory that's about to be revealed in us. That glory that's about to be revealed in us is the glory of Christ, and because we're sharing in that glory, we shall be like him. Paul's saying, the sufferings of this present age, all the sufferings of this present age, think the Holocaust, World War II, World War I, think slavery, think the violation of the American Indians, think every genocide that's ever happened, every child that's ever been kidnapped, all the terror, the nightmares, the gore of world history. Paul has the audacity to say, it's not worth comparing. Like, I would have, like, if you picture scales like this, I would have thought it would have been glorious just to say, the glories that are, that are going to be revealed, revealed in us outweigh the sufferings. That would have been immense. That would have been wonderful. I, I, that's good news. But he says, it doesn't just outweigh it. If this is the weight of glory, and then you put all the weight of the world's suffering on the other scale, it doesn't even register. It's like dust. It's not worth comparing now, I can't begin to conceive of a beauty that is so magnificent that it renders the Holocaust and every other horror of world history inconsequential. But that is what Paul is saying. In fact, he's saying more than that because it's not just that it renders the suffering inconsequential, but elsewhere he tells us that everything in heaven and on earth, past and present, will be summed up into Christ and made whole and will be harmonized somehow, someway. God's going to bring good out of all that evil. God's going to bring redemptive value out of the most hideous stuff in the world. I can't begin to logically even imagine what that is like. I've had a few experiences in the inner sanctum, going places with Jesus. I like to do that a lot. I just think it's so enjoyable. It's a, take a break from this mundane world and journey with Jesus. And, and it's, there's a few times where I feel like I just caught a glimpse of something, a glimpse of something that I 
can just, I sense is so overwhelmingly beautiful that if I had the capacity to live there, which I don't yet, but if I had the capacity to somehow stay there, I would in fact, I can imagine, I can actually conceive of it overwhelming, being so overwhelming that it would render everything else inconsequential. But it's only glimpses I get. It's just glimpses, like, ah. Oh. But see, we're supposed to get glimpses. It's that hunger. We're supposed to be hungry. The word I have for this, this sermon is just, stay hungry for beauty. It's, 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 as we said at the very beginning of, in, in that, the, the creative moment, it's seeing the beauty that should make us hungry. Okay, and, 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 and to, to be chasers of beauty, pursuing that beauty. I want more of that beauty. Um, the end game, the end vision, this beatific vision is what drives us. It's what motivates us. This is the direction the world is going, you see. And, and, and the way we acquire this beauty, the world's heading towards beauty, and the way it, it, the, what drives the world towards this beauty is people, the bride, becoming beautified. It's as we behold this beauty that we become this beauty, and then that's how we begin to beautify the world. God's ruling the world and redeeming the world through beauty. Our, our job is to let him do this. So we have a role to play, and this is my last point. Uh, John says, the last statement he says is that all who have this hope purify themselves, for he is pure. Like is known by like. You want to know God? Get like God. Um, if you have this hope, you know that someday you're going to see him. That much is settled. Uh, well, then, then, start pure, then purify yourself as he is pure. Why? Because we saw this. Only to the degree that you're pure can you see the pure God. Only to the degree that you're loyal can you see the loyal God. Only to the degree that you're blameless can you see the blameless God. But to the degree that you're crooked, you're always going to see a perverse God. So God in his love and mercy comes down and frees us from that perverse perception of him in order to see him according to loyalty and in truth and in goodness. But that implies, like, imply, like is known by like, means that we are also in the, being transformed in this process. And how do we get purified? Oh, community is absolutely essential. We all need accountability. All the spiritual disciplines are wonderful to, to this end. But the primary way that Paul gives us, how are we beautified? By looking at beauty. By gazing at beauty. As we behold the beauty, we become the beauty, are transformed into the image of that, that beauty. And the end game is that we shall be like him. God's in the process of burning away all that is inconsistent with his love and refining all that is consistent and Paul tells us that that's going to go on after death. So, so this is a process we want to be involved in now. Burning away the chaff, the stuff that's not compatible with God, in order to refine the stuff that is compatible so that we become more like his beauty, so we can see more of the beauty and become more like his beauty and see more of his beauty, knowing that someday, hallelujah, we shall see him as he is, for we shall be like him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God's been doing this throughout history, and it culminates in the end. Uh, with this beatific vision. Uh, the word, folks, is pursue beauty. It's like stay hungry for this beauty. Our, our motivator is, is that, that the, the promise that we shall be like him. And as we catch glimpses of that, as, as we take time to dwell in God's presence and ask the Spirit to activate our imaginations and experience the beauty of God, however that works for you, and let the Spirit be creative because we're all different. But as that happens, God breathes his beauty into this world and um, it's all just about having faith in Christ. To have faith is to see something as a substantial reality, something that you believe to be true and you see it as a substantial reality. Have faith in, in, in Christ in the end. To have faith in that is to see it and to ask the Spirit to show you the beauty, the true beauty of Christ, the true beauty of the gospel. And that's how we're transformed from one degree of beauty to another. Amen? Make time to do that. Just make a date. I, I encourage you to carve out a date with Jesus. 
And, and get alone. I like to put on music, turn off the lights, however it works for you. Experiment. And then just ask the Spirit to show you the beauty. And however beautiful you, whatever you see, however beautiful it is, if it doesn't yet render the, all the sufferings of this present age inconsequential, you haven't arrived yet. Uh, keep on going. Keep, keep on asking the Spirit to make it more beautiful, more beautiful. Show me more beauty, more beauty. Going in the right direction, knowing that someday we shall see him as he is. Now, this takes practice. If you've never done this before, it can feel awkward. It can feel weird. I have a book out there you might want to check out called Seeing is Believing that can help you with this. Uh, but I encourage all of us to make this a staple of our, our, our walk with God. Uh, get in touch with that inner sanctum. Let him display his beauty towards you to wake you out of your stupor to ever-increasing visions of his glory, of his beauty. Amen? Amen. Would you stand? I'd like to call the team forward. And if you're here this morning and have any need that could use prayer, for example, a sore back maybe or something of the sort, but it could be anything, I encourage you to come up here and pray with these folks. They'd love to minister to you. And if you're here this morning and are not a disciple of Jesus, you're not a follower of Jesus, I encourage you to consider becoming one. And if you want to find out more about that, just come up here and talk to these folks and they'd love to explain that to you. So as we leave here, can we do it as a people that are committed to being Chasers of beauty, pursuers of beauty, passionately pursue ultimate beauty, and the name of ultimate beauty is Jesus Christ. If you're in agreement with that, say amen and go out and love your neighbors. All right, God bless.